Hello and welcome to Monkey Business, a podcast about the mind. I'm Rosalind Palmer, your host, and I'm a rapid transformational hypnotherapist, clinical hypnotherapist and coach. For 30 years, I've been steeped in the world of NLP and learning about what makes people tick. My background is a business background. I ran, I created, I sold an award-winning PR company in the 90s. I learned a lot about business. I also learned a lot about mindset and I learned the hard way about burnout. Having the right mindset in business is arguably the number one predictor of whether your business will succeed or fail. What's more, your business can succeed, mine did, but you might fail as a human being. So quieting your mind is a key to enjoying the business journey, coming back from setbacks, enjoying the successes without letting them completely change you, and also creating a balanced life for yourself outside of the business. This is a podcast for you to learn from the successes and failures of others who have tamed their monkey mind or sometimes allowed their chimp to take over. It will give you insights into how they've used their mindset for success and help you navigate your life and achieve better business outcomes. So without further ado, welcome to Monkey Business. I'm Rosalind Palmer and you are most welcome. Hello, and I'm Rosalind Palmer, and welcome to another episode of Monkey Business, the podcast that aims to look behind the thinking of kings and queens of their own particular jungles, people who've tamed their monkey mindset, come through adversity to create success, but the success of life and business. I'm really interested in what makes them tick behind those habits. And I'm absolutely delighted today, and I've just touched base with him earlier because we haven't seen each other for quite some time, to be joined by Ram Gidemol. And Ram and I uh, first met several years ago when I was head of marketing and communications for the leprosy mission. And Ram was one of the, um, was it trustees or? Honorary vice presidents. Honorary <laughs> vice president. My, my goodness, Ram, it, you, you must need a very big business card. So um, <laughs> I'm not going to over introduce you, Ram, because I think during sure. that conversation, it would be lovely to find out more about you. But for anybody listening immediately, please stay tuned because Ram has currently a portfolio of interests. He chairs uh, a social enterprise, the Cotton Connect, which helps farmers with organic cotton. He's the chair of, is it Elia? Is that Elia, Elia Limited. And that helps charities and housing associations and that you've created um, money, raised money of over a billion. It's not a billion. It's a billion, correct. Yeah. Wow. Uh, also a non-executive board member of the Parliamentary and Health Servicemen Ombudsman and other boards in the US and Israel. You're a CBE. And first of all, 
perhaps you'd like to just introduce yourself and say what you think, Ram, because I can dip in and out of your life and your portfolio. But in terms of maybe pivoting or big changes in your life where your mindset has maybe even made other people go, wow, are we doing that? What would you say about yourself? I'm married, (laughs) my wife, three children and seven grandchildren. And family, to me, has been one of the most important things, pivotal. And uh, every decision I've taken, uh, apart from the fact that I follow Jesus Christ and therefore uh, am someone who will pray to him and seek his guidance and wisdom, it's my wife who I work closely with. So, for example, to give you a flavor of that, when at the age of 37, I decided to quit my job, a very successful job, 7,000 people, 15 countries, $200 million turnover, interests with a vineyard and a brewery and a trading business and a tea estate. To take a decision to just leave all that was a very, very radical decision, but one I only took as long as my wife and I were of one mind and agreed that it was the right thing to do. So that to me is a very, very important part of me is family, my wife, and, and, and of course, uh, my, my faith. That's me. Wow. Well, let, let's, let's explore that pivotal point in your life a bit more. So you're 37. I believe you were earning probably more than a million a year. Is that correct? Well, uh, let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. The bonuses that uh, I was on the threshold of becoming the number one in the company. I was one of three. And uh, I was on the threshold of becoming one of the top people. And I know what that meant and what that means. It's a seven-figure bonus. It's it's just incredible. I mean, already it was quite a generous, uh, generously well-paid job. And because my wife and I don't have interest in terms of yachts and planes and all the exotic stuff, remember, I came to Britain as a refugee. And so all those tastes one develops in wealthy families, I did not have, So, which is a good thing, I think, because it meant I didn't have all that expense. So the bonuses, whatever I was getting was piling up and so when I went to Bombay, to then Bombay, on a business trip to buy seafoods for the factories in Scotland, we'd acquired, acquired these factories in Scotland. Um, on the last day of the trip, I was taken uh, at my request to see the work, the businesses that I was doing, de- dealing with, what do they do in terms of the community? That's very important. So I was taken by a group of uh, local people to the largest slum in Asia, it's the slum where Slumdog Millionaire was shot, the film. Yeah, I've been there also. Um, right. I yeah. went there in 87, which yeah. is years before the film. But that visit was just, it just broke my heart. I saw a five-year-old kid. Uh, uh, he's going to sleep in a tube, a water pipe. Uh, couldn't even afford the cardboard boxes because the slum law doesn't allow it. What world are we in? So on my, uh, I got, got into the airport, checked in, Air France, First class, uh, Bombay, uh, Paris, Paris, Glasgow, and Glasgow back home. And I got into the flight. I couldn't touch the champagne or the caviar they, caviar they offer you as you get in. Uh, I couldn't eat the food. I mean, exotic stuff, all this French cuisine. I said, I just can't eat. I feel sick about what I've seen. And so when I came back and spoke to my wife uh, the, 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 the next morning and said, something's happened. That trip has just blown my mind. What I've seen is just... It just made me think again about what am I doing and why am I doing it? When we can't even spend the interest we earn, what are we doing it for? 
So both of us prayed, and over a period of three, four, five months, we looked at our financial situation, looked at the children's education, looked at our health policy, looked at housing, and we said, you know what? We could sell the house, the children in the state school, no private medical, let's just go and do what we can. This is the real philosophy that drives me. Never let what you cannot do stop you from doing what you can do. So it's this can do. I said, what can we do? And there began a journey where I met uh, Steve Chalk, uh, a Baptist youth minister. Um, uh, he'd run a project in Kent, which had raised five, uh, I think, maybe two, two three thousand pounds, maybe five thousand pounds in Kent by running what he called Beggar's Banquet, third world food at posh Western prices. I said, mm, I don't like Beggar's Banquet as a name. Let's call it something different. So the trans four of us said Christmas Cracker. There, the project was born. Uh, over seven years, over four million pounds was raised. But more than that, 50,000 teenagers mobilized. And it opened my eyes to a new world that we can do much more for the needs we see out there if only we go with our eyes wide open and with the can-do culture. And that really has helped me to, 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 to see the potential and possibilities because from that flowed, with the time I now had not been full, not, not working 24-7 for a company to raise millions for them, millions were being raised now for the poor where the need really was, rather than lining the pockets of shareholders and uh, people who are rich anyway. Here, the poor were being helped. And the same gifts and skills that I had, which generated millions for the company, to my amazement, were able to generate that for the poor. And that, to me, has been just so exciting to see, because you then have time you see social issues. So one issue I saw, young Asian girls in Britain, I just read the statistic, the attempted suicide rate amongst young Asian girls is four times the national average. Now, I could understand it, six sisters. I know what they went through when we arrived as refugees. You arrive with one culture and mindset. Mm. You now have a family with that mindset, but you have a country with a different mindset. So my sister may have a boyfriend at school, not allowed in our culture. So what happens? You hit 16 or 17 or 18 for the girls, you're taken to India and you have to get married, whether you want to or not, against your will. And so that really used to upset me because I had the full freedom as a boy. They didn't. I read in the newspapers about a young a billionaire's son who literally took his own life, burning himself with petrol alive. And at that point, I decided to write my first book. And I wrote Sari and Chips, my very first book, East and West. What happens when you cross cultures? How do, you, how do I explain as an Asian to white people, to non-Asians, what is going on beneath my skin? What is going on behind the door of my house, which they need to be aware of, not because this is displaying one's, um, whatever you call laundry in public, but so that there is understanding. So they can understand what is going on. We can understand what is going on. How do we build that understanding? That, again, is a shift of mindset in people's minds. How old and were you when you wrote that book, Ram? I was twi- I was 30. I was, I retired at 37, so I would have been 40, 43. 43? Let me just get this syntax right, because you've said so much and it's so incredible. I just want for anybody to listen. Please, sure. Slightly deconstruct it. Yeah, so please. at 37, that was your 
aha moment in the slum, slum dog millionaire. Correct. Slum, Correct. As you know it, in Bombay, as it was, Mumbai yes. now. Back on that Air France flight, I'm going to change everything. Absolutely worked in partnership with your wife and moved away from those seven-figure sums and the private school and the house to supporting those people and then creating Christmas Cracker, I think it was. And Correct. so several years after that, two, three years after that, you then wrote this first book, um, which really was an eye-opener about multiculturalism. Correct. Multiculturalism is something that really if you have a quick look at your CV or anything about you, I mean, for a start, religion, uh, I think, tell me if I've got this right, you were born into a Hindu family, but you were brought up as a Sikh, you yeah. went through a Muslim school, and then you became a Christian. You also started life um, in East Africa and you came at 17 to the UK as a refugee with your extended family. And so you had not only that cultural change in terms of culture and country, but you also had a religious change. How did you navigate that, Ram? Again, in your mind, Hmm. what was your true north? How did you manage to have the mindset, have the understanding to really keep some sort of identity through all of that? Well, uh, I was brought up with a lot of faith, Hindu faith, Islamic faith, uh, uh, Sikh faith. And then when I came across the message of Jesus Christ, I could understand faith and I could understand God. Some people don't believe, but I could, to me, which is which God. But Mm. when I read about the possibility for the forgiveness of sins now, not waiting for the day of judgment, not waiting for to be born again and again and again as part of reincarnation, but now that struck me as very strange, uh, too good to be true. And I thought, I must check this out. But the more I read the Bible for myself, and this was the turning point for me, until, up till this point, I was, think, I was only relying on what others had told me. Oh, this is the white man's God. Um, you, know, you know, I was imagining Jesus in a bowler hat, pinstripe suit, and a three, and, and you know, and and uh, working in the city of London. Imagine kind of some of chap. the early paintings of Jesus Christ are, I think, culturally quite amiss, but there we go. So, so there we are. But... Here I came across the message of somebody which was simple, understandable, and very powerful. And uh, as the more I read about Jesus, the more I felt, you know, this is somebody I really, really should follow. I can't see what any reason why I shouldn't follow him. He isn't what was made out to me historically by my family. And so I decided to accept him as my Lord and Savior. And that was a major turning point for me, because from that point on, a lot of things that, 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 that I went on to do, uh, a whole lot of things were very much driven in my faith. So with, with my business, not only was it the visit to, to Mumbai, Bombay, but simultaneously I was struggling with the ethics of business. Mm. You know, was it right to make, you know, I had a shipment of chicken, frozen chicken, uh, $7 million worth of chicken going to a country in Africa, which on arrival g- gave the company $21 million. Now, wow. very exciting from a, from a business point of view. You know, hedge fund people are making that kind of money by the second today. But in the 80s, it was huge. But some country has lost $14 million extra foreign exchange. Yeah. 
there are jobs there, there is poverty there. Is this right? So those ethical issues were, and all driven by my faith. Yeah. So at the age of 37, when I retired, it took me four or five years to ease out of the company, by the way, because I didn't want to just dump the family and say, goodbye, I'm away. I had to do it responsibly. And it is family. Important. Yeah. So they understood. I understood. They thought I would change my mind. Uh, I did not. From four days a week with the company, I decided to switch it to just one day a week with the company. But I gave them that time over a four or five year period. But that gave me time as well to do other things like Christmas Cracker over a five-year period, for example. And uh, and uh, then I think it would have been about 41, 42 that I saw the issue about young Asian girls. That's when I then wrote the book. But even in that transition period, Rosalind, um, uh, uh, what the miracles did happen uh, by an extraordinary set of circumstances, the mortgage on the house had got written off because I have forgotten that I had been saving with the company in addition to my bonuses, <laughs> a pension contribution, I said, oh, I, you know, gosh, I'm not keeping track of all this. My mortgage is written off. Uh, uh, there was an inheritance that then paid for the children's education so they could stay at the same public school. They I were was at. going to ask you about that. I was going to ask, how did the children feel about your egalitarian move in well, taking them away from well, their school? Well, well, for, well for, very fortunately, uh, because they have also been brought up in the faith, they respected the faith, they, 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 they understood what was driving me. And in terms of the schools, what was miraculous was, uh, as I said, that inheritance paid for their education. So that's a miracle for me that that did happen. And they were then paid for in the public schools they were going to. So there was no lack of any education or, or, or funds for them. And uh, uh, they could stay on in the house. We didn't need the Mercedes. We didn't need all those expensive cars. In fact, from two cars, we came to one, so Sunita could take the children to school, but I would use public transport thenceforth. And that was terrific. So we, we, we just learned to accommodate, to, to live in a way that was commensurate with what we had. You walked your talk, and in Correct. 2004, you ran for mayor of London. Was a lot <laughs> of these principles, multiculturalism, wanting... Um, London that was really understood and led by business people and worked for the people living in it. Were these the things that prompted you to do that, Ram? Yeah. yeah but firstly, it was in 2000. The very first mayoral election was in 2000. The second one in 2004. You're right. I did run in 2004, but it, 2000 was the very first election. And um, for me, it was six principles that drove my manifesto and my policies. Social justice, compassion, reconciliation, empowerment, respect for life, uh, stewardship of resources. When you look at all these different elements of values, they underpin every policy. So much so, Rosalind, that when the new statesman ran a blind web poll called fantasymayor.com, <laughs> uh, where they chose six, six candidates who were running for election out of the 15, and I was very fortunate to have been chosen as one of the six. Uh, they put our policies on the website and asked 15 questions. So when you get into the website, you're asked 15 questions. Firstly, who would you vote for? On that one, I came to the bottom, <laughs> six out of the six. But then what do you want from a mayor of London when it comes to housing, uh, uh, when it comes to schools, when it comes to crime, when it comes to health? 15 policy questions, what do you want on a scale of one to five? And they then match that with what the, what the candidates were offering in their manifesto. 
I came number one. In other words, what, what that showed me actually was not that, oh, aren't you clever and you got the policies right, but that these policies based on Christian values and principles, all that I've outlined are Christian Democrat values and principles, are what people actually want. Because so that's what, what that poll showed. Get elected then. Oh, I'll tell you why. Because as uh, as um, uh, the 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 uh, e evening standard, uh, I think somebody put it. Uh, alas, it's personality. <laughs> what they said is, you can have the best policies in the world, but what you will then find in politics is the the whole personality issue. So Ken Livingston, a personality in the in the public domain, uh, you who have. Uh, 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 all, all the candidates you look at, you know, um, uh, uh, Stephen Norris, his own reputation and his own whatever that he had. You look at every candidate running, you know, but I was a refugee. In fact, the Times newspaper, when they broke my story, what did they say? Former refugee throws hat in the ring. Now, I, I didn't mind it at all. It's the truth. In fact, I tell you, it would have got me all the refugee votes because they kept following me saying, help us. You know, we are here in London. You understand that underclass of London because you lived as we are living. You know how what it was like to come. 15 of you in four bedrooms. That's what happened when we arrived Yeah, in Shepherd's Bush. And uh, so, so, you know, and, you know, I mean, just one toilet, one bath. And uh, uh, the cat had the most space in the basement. Huge. <laughs> all to the cat. <laughs> and that was the, that's where we stayed. So I understood it. And so when I spoke with them, they knew the credibility was there and the genuineness was there. So alas, refugees, many can't register to vote. <laughs> yeah. And look at the new, uh, maybe we shouldn't digress, but I, you know, I just read this week about the, the policy of, um, it was in the Queen's speech, wasn't it? That's right. That's right. That's right. And, and that yeah. looks like it would work against more oh, Anyone, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it, it would totally, totally, they're totally. They're going to be totally. the very people who don't have a passport or don't Correct. have. Yeah. So, yeah, that doesn't seem... Um, no, but this is it. But, but you see, this, this is it, Rosalind. This is exactly why I was running, to raise the issues. You know, a refugee, once they get the right to work here, right, they get indefinitely to remain after, you know, if, if their paperwork is correct. Guess what was happening? They weren't getting a national insurance number. So you get your right to remain. You go and try and get a job. Oh, what's your national insurance number? Okay. We haven't got it. We're, we can't pay you your salary then. Why? Because you can't open a bank account without that. So, we, so then I campaigned in one charity that I chaired at that time, the Employability Forum. It's about employability. We campaigned and we won. I got the Home Secretary, the ministers, the all of them together in, in one room. David Blunkett at that time, um, um, the chair of the Commission for Racial Equality, the, uh, the Works and Pensions Minister, uh, uh, the FTSE chairs, a group of about 40 people together and said, now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, can we sort this out? And a publication emerged, both ministers signed it. I signed on behalf of the voluntary sector, and they said, right from now on, anyone gets indefinitely to remain with ILR, will get a national insurance number. At the same time, the ministries have been coordinated as opposed to just, well, leave everyone to their own. So that that's the sort of thing we need to watch, as you rightly pointed out. Yeah. The right to vote, paperwork, all that. I feel, you know, I'm. I would have been a suffragette, Ram. I would have been chaining myself to railings. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you when my the last elections. I'm. I lit. I'm. 
texting my son, go, I don't care if you spoil your ballot paper, just go and vote. Do you know what that vote means? So I feel very strongly about this. Um, you're a non-executive board member, I'm just reading it so I get it right, of the Parliamentary yes. um, and Health Service Ombudsman. Now, not necessarily talking about that role in detail, but talking about leading on from what we've just been talking about. Is your mindset that it's better to be inside the tent trying to create the influence or have you sometimes been outside the tent trying to agitate? What's your view on that? I have both. Yeah. It's, it's both hand, you know. So, yes, uh, the Parliamentary and Health Services Ombudsman, or you take Alia Limited. Yes, it's a company in the mainstream in, in one sense, a social enterprise raised a billion pounds because we are in the system. The billion pounds invested is the Scottish government wanted bonds raised for their housing. Who helped them? We did, a government. Uh, a, 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 a banks get involved. Uh, we, we launched a bond for the first time on the London Stock Exchange. So, you know, you're in and yeah. that helps. And that's where the billion pounds is now coming forward. When we started, people laughed. You can't do this 20 years ago. And it took us about 10 years before we started getting any sizable, significant bonds issued. And now it's just taken off to a billion, you know, which is fantastic. But you have to be in and out. And on the out, on the out front, you're campaigning. You, 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 you are putting, you're really putting your voice out there saying, make a difference. Don't let this lie as it is. So to give an example, um, two weeks ago, and this is a challenge, you know, one of one of the uh, uh, challenges was, and this was the most difficult current challenge I faced. Just two weeks ago, I got a call from a hospital we help in India, in North India, in Uttar Pradesh, in, yeah. right out in the boonies. And this hospital, we, we managed to raise for them a part of the budget, but it's for their expenses, okay? Mm -hmm. The director called and said, COVID has hit us. India at the moment is going through one of the worst yeah, global crises on COVID. Yeah. And he said, our hospital has been declared a COVID hospital. I said, right, so what's happening? He said, well, no oxygen machine, no ventilator. COVID patients are flocking at our door and dying as, as they come in in 15 minutes. They're just dying. They're gasping for breath. We don't have the, what do we do? He says, can we buy an oxygen machine? I said, how much does it cost? He said, and from this very room where we are speaking, he said, 20,000 pounds round. So I looked at his account with us and he had that much to, for the running of the hospital. Mm -hmm. So I said to my wife, Sunita, you know what? Let's just send that for his oxygen machine. I authorized him then and there, the 24th of April, buy that machine now. And we both looked at each other, my wife and I, let's do an appeal for this 20,000 pounds. Yeah. By that night, we put out a press release to our supporters saying, oxygen machine, desperate need, 20,000 pounds. By Monday lunchtime, it was in. Wow. Guess what? The guy calls me, Ram, I forgot about ventilators. <laughs> okay. How many do you need? Uh, he said, one. I said, are you sure? He said, well, maybe two. I said, think hard, 15, uh, 10 beds. Uh, I've seen your hospital. He said, three, if you can dare. I said, all right, we will up the appeal from 20 to 50,000. By Tuesday lunchtime, 50,000 in the account and rising today as we speak, we have now passed 200,000 pounds. Wow. And the neighboring hospitals, the neighboring hospitals, there are 19 hospitals who are part of Emmanuel Hospital Association, of which this hospital, Kachwa Christian Hospital, is a part. 
These are all Christian hospitals founded over hundreds of years ago, by, well, over whatever decades ago, before independence, by British missions. Mm. And these British missions hospitals are today serving the poorest of the poor, which was the mandate given to them when they were established, that no poor person would be charged anything. And, and they continue on that principle. They charge the middle class to, that subsidizes. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, we send them an ultrasound machine. We say, charge the proper rate. But for the poorest of the poor, so here the poorest of the poor are dying. So we said, right, and 200,000 pounds has come. The need is million plus. Yeah. And uh, uh, But I'm getting, even before I came on the call, I got a request, send us the appeal detail, forward us the, 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 the link to your uh, stewardship account we want to give. It's just amazing to see the response of the British public that is so, so generous. Really. That's my question. Who is giving this money and how are you getting to them? Oh, uh, South Asian Concern, which I founded over 30 years ago, yep. uh, basically works with uh, church leaders and churches and Christians to help build bridges between South Asians and the mainstream community. So, you know, you have the Church of England church, Vicar, and I get a call from a vicar saying, I'm in an area, you know, I haven't, just observing it now, a lot of South Asians in my neighborhood. How do I share the gospel with them? How do I share with them what we believe as believers and understand what they believe so we can find a bridge between our communities? And uh, 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 so, so, so that's why Sari and Shifts was partly about that. Yes. The book I wrote. And, 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 and then after that, I wrote the book Chapati's for Tea, which was how do you understand your Hindu neighbor? And then Lions, Princesses, Gurus, how do you understand your Sikh neighbor? So it was about building bridges all the time across cultures. So the, these, the, this is over 30 years, a database has been built up of supporters who love the work we do and want to know more and get training and get contacts and connections. But it's that database of people who've then gone and told their people. So I'll tell you an interesting fact. When we sent that release out on, on a Saturday by Saturday midnight, by Monday, we were noticing a lot of money coming from Scotland. Really? We said, yeah, Scotland. We said, How? We, we don't have that many supporters in Scotland. Well, there is one supporter who actually worked in the hospital in North India, which wow. we were raising money for. She must have, I believe she must have alerted all her network. And honestly, we were getting checks from five pounds, 10 pounds. There was one check of 20,000 pounds. There was another one, several of 5,000, 10,000, but again, but a lot of them, 100, 200, 300, and then Stewardship Services, which is a Christian charity that handles money that Christians want to send uh, to, to missions. I was chairman of, that, chairman of that for three years, Stewardship Services uh, for three years, and I retired. So they called me and said, what can we do to help this cause? I said, look, I don't know what you can do, but I'll tell you what I'm doing. Here's the cause. They said, we'll put it on our website. The next thing I know, 100, 300, 500, their, their, their network is beginning to work. And so like that, it's just going out there. And, and, and I was, um, we were overwhelmed. And my poor wife, Sunita, who thought she would have to handle the accounts for 20,000 pounds worth of gifts, <laughs> is now working every hour given to A, make sure the money is sent out. And we've already sent over 50% of it out. And by next week, it will all have gone out. Uh, oxygen machine that was ordered should be there in a couple of weeks. 
The ventilators are flying in from at least from one of the hospitals from Switzerland. They're going to be there on Tuesday next week. So it's moving. The aid is getting out there and the money is coming in. But as quickly as it comes in, I want it out. It yeah. can't stay in the accounts. And so just that is a challenge I faced two weeks ago. And it was, again, don't let what you cannot do stop you from doing what you can do. We can send press releases. We can contact our supporter base. We can let them know. Then you leave it to the Lord. If it works, fine. We were, if we got £20,000, we would have been well chuffed. Thank you, Lord. One oxygen machine. Yeah. <sighs> what do you think? I mean, that's such a fantastic mantra. And I've seen massive shifts. I'm a big fan of the Oscars. I was watching the Oscars this year, although, it, you know, interesting. <laughs> yes. The whole... The whole um, Black Lives Matter, Me Too. I was interviewed, funnily enough, um, for The Telegraph earlier in the year about Me Too because of an incident that had happened with me in the 80s. Which really? Been, yeah, yeah. I was attacked by a guy who turned out to be Brit Britain's biggest serial rapist. Um, luckily, oh I, I, I escaped. But it, it was kind of swept under the carpet at the time in terms of reporting and the, the police, etc. Um, and, you know, without making massive statements about it, I, I, I think as a woman, I wasn't really heard. And so I'm clearly, you know, very an advocate of, I'm a therapist now, I have to listen to a lot of people who've come through a lot of not being heard, not having their voices heard, not having their needs heard, not having their wants heard. What do you think would be, what can we do, Ram, as a culture, as a society today, with this shift, this groundswell towards better justice and equality? What else do you think we could do? As individuals, all I, all I would say is and it has to start from the individual. You know, we can talk society, we can talk community. It has to begin with me. Mm. So what can I do? And I'm always inspired by this one example, which I heard of a young child, a young boy on the beach. And there he was throwing shellfish back into the sea. As they were coming in as quickly, you know, at the beach, he was throwing them back in. And an older man, my age maybe, passes by him and says, young kid, young boy, what are you doing? Every time you throw those shellfish back in, another million are landing on the beach. Just let it go. He picked one up and he threw it and he said it makes all the difference to that one. I love it. It's actually that. You know that story? It's told about a starfish. And, Correct. And I have a starfish tattoo, Ram. Wow, nice I one. And so I have a tattoo. It's a reminder. Yeah, yeah, it's well, a reminder. It's basically saying yeah. one per we can change the world one person at a time, one I, event at a time, one incident at a time. We got to work on that basis. Totally. I came through cancer 17 years ago wow. and celebrate coming through cancer because I had been living in the Bahamas and I saw starfish every day and I would throw them back in the sea. <laughs> my church there, they had that story on the wall as you walked in. Yeah, yeah. and I love it. And so I thought, yeah, I I'm, love going it. To, I'm going to mark the fact that I've come through this and here's my picture. Yeah. And yeah. it's made a difference to me and I can make a difference to other people. So I had a tattoo. So you probably didn't know and that. That's it. No, I didn't know that. And I, and I, but I love it. And I've said, and even when I say people hear it the second time, third time, every time I hear it, it really works on me. 
I keep thinking now, what's the one difference today? You know, what's yeah. the one thing we can do? And I think it's all it takes is one at a time. You know, when I gave up that job of which with the prospect of a million dollar bonus, my sister said to me, but surely you could keep that job and tithe your bonus. You'd make a difference with that. And I said to her, I'm reading this book. It's called The Mustard Seed Conspiracy. And in that Mustard Seed Conspiracy, this example is put in by this, the guy who wrote the book. He said, if every person says they will make a pound of a difference, then a million people will make a million pound of a difference. Now, if I could try and see that happening, and interestingly, Christmas Cracker did that, because Christmas Cracker effectively raised five, nearly five, four to five million pounds. Mm -hmm. So that was me, one person, starting to impact one young person, one youth leader, and one at a time across the country, 50,000 young people running these restaurants across the country, eat less, pay more, over five years, seven years, each of them then working with their churches and each of the churches working with their people and they're all flocking into these restaurants, spending their one pound or two pounds and it's multiplying. So it's yeah. one person at a time, one step at a time and, and we can't do more than that. And I think that to me is a philosophy we need to have and then working with others, always in partnership, saying, look, I can't do everything. And one plus one in my mathematics makes 11. <laughs> okay. You know, and I think that's what we should aim for. Figures, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned when we were chatting before we came uh, on air that um, you'd never managed to get your PhD, but people keep giving you honorary <laughs> doctorates. So doctor, 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 I believe. Um, well, I <laughs> How do I mean? That's a lovely thing. I mean, obviously these things are incredibly um, moving and flattering. I mean, how how do you feel about those? Well, I mean, I, I got a shock when I got my first letter. It was from Bristol University, and uh, I realized Bristol is one of these sort of Russell Group top universities, and I was suspicious. I didn't believe it, so I actually called a few friends, saying, "By the way, I've never experienced this before. What does it mean?" And they said, oh, Ram, you know, you, you could be, maybe maybe you made a donation. I said, no, I've given them a penny, nothing. Uh, I've just got this. And I then worked, for, worked out later when I met a few of the professors and things. They said, no, we'd seen the books you've written. We'd seen that you'd run for mayor of London and did really well. You got 100,000 votes. You came fourth out of 15 candidates. We even read your book, How Would Jesus Vote? And we read all your other books, Sari and Chips and... Uh, Another book, The British and How to Deal with Them, which is doing business with Britain's ethnic communities, the dealing as in business. And so they said, we've seen the works you've done and we want to acknowledge it. And that is why you are getting this honorary doctorate. And it was an LLD. Uh, so, uh, uh, we, we, you know, Doctor of Laws, which was okay. quite flattering. And, uh, and so, uh, and the other amusing thing was uh, that was one. And then they come like buses, you know, and then I got run from, 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 uh, Southampton, and uh, which was Nottingham Trent, and one from uh, Middlesex, and then my own alumni college, I Imperial College, which, you know, just moved me because I'll tell you, when I came as a refugee, I chose Imperial College. I had never heard of it before, uh, Rosalind, never. I'd not heard of Imperial. But the only place I could afford to go to from the corner shop in Shepherd's Bush was a 5P bus ride on the number 49 bus, that and that's where it took me to Imperial, yeah. 
So I decided that's where I would go when I applied and I got it. And when I, my first day, I saw all these professors distinguished Lord Penny and all that. And I could see FIC fellowship. And I said, oh boy, how did they get that? These are amazing people, extraordinary. And there I was, I was given a fellowship of Imperial College. And I thought, this is so amazing. And then invited to a conference to speak in Dresden, Germany. And the German organizer of the conference uh, sent me a, a, an email and he signed it, you know, Dr. Dr. Gerard. And I thought, Dr. Dr. Gerard? That's interesting. What, what, he had two PhDs. I said, oh, I know what. I, I don't like all these titles and being showing off. I never put any of those in my, in my signatures. But lots of people put the whole lot of list of titles. I never do that. Uh, so, so I then sent him a nice email back saying, Dear Dr. Gerard, dear Dr. Dr. Gerard, da 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 da, signed Dr. 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 Ram Gidubas. Things changed after that. CBE after it as well. Oh, that was that was on my signature too, which of course, which uh, I got him to see. Look, we can all have titles. Let's deal as human beings, one with another. We are equal. There is no difference between us. You know, in the, very quickly, because uh, I'm going to ask you my uh, penultimate question, but in the 80s when people got quite pretentious about their business cards, you know, and you'd, you'd go, and I was in London in the 80s and the 90s, um, and somebody gave me this business card and I was looking at it and it was like, and then it said T-T-M-A-R. So I'm looking at it, I'm trying to work it out. <laughs> the whatever the whatever and in the end I said what does that mean and he said take the money and run <laughs> I love it <laughs> that's a great title now that is a and nice title to have. on his business card and he said you're the first person who's ever actually asked me <laughs> I love it I'm going to use that <laughs> so you can add that as well, Ram. It's my I gift, think we will, yeah. it's my <laughs> gift to you today, my gift to you today. Um, so what question would you ask yourself that maybe I haven't asked you, which would help just before we end, anybody listening, to understand this incredible journey, your life and your mindset? Is there something that you'd like to ask yourself, Ram? You mean a, a question to myself that yeah. uh, that really uh, would would uh, gosh that's a very very tough question, Rosalind. I've been thinking about that sort of question, and what 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 question would I ask myself? Um, I suppose you know the bottom line question anyone should be asked at any time to really challenge themselves is, what would you give your life for? Mm. What would you give your life for? And, you know, that I think is, well, I look at the Lord Jesus and say, he gave his life for me. If he gave his life for me, what am I then prepared to do in response to what he has done for me? And there is only one answer that I've been able to give to that question for is that, what do I do? And that is to, that to do whatever I do will be a response of his love to me, and therefore an act of my love towards him. You know, do what you do as an act of love for one who gave himself for you. So to me, uh, uh, and the reason I say this is, you know, I come from a Hindu family, Hindu background. Very often, the philosophy is the principle of karma. You do what you do to earn karma. Yeah. Well, you know, in following Christ, there is no question of earning any karma. You cannot pay for the salvation that Christ offers. Mm. You can't buy it. It's not for sale. 
So therefore, accept it as a gift. And now you do what you do as an act of love, as an act of love in response to what he has done for me. So to me, that really answers my question, which I've asked, which is, what would you give your life for? It is now giving my life for the Lord as an act of love for what he has done for me. I'm not earning any brownie points. I'm not earning any karmic debt here to pay for any karma. It's saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And that is why I do what I do as an act of gratitude and thanks to the Lord who loved me and gave himself for me. And if anybody would like to, because they've been inspired whilst listening to you, to donate uh, certainly to your fundraising for India or any of the other mm -hmm. charities that you're involved with, Ram, how would they get further details about that? Well, I mean, there's a website which has the details. It's a, a, a South Asian concern, that is S-O-U-T-H, then Asian, A-S-I-A-N, and then concern. C-O-N-C-E-R-N, all one word, lowercase, southasianconcern.org.uk. And that will take them to the website, which will then have details of how to give and where to give. Stewardship also has that. I'm more than happy to send you, Roslyn, uh, the, 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 the latest press release we issued just yesterday morning. And I'll, I'll put a link when we send this And out. if you can put a link to that, there is a straight link to the stewardship account. They yeah. can give there. And what we are saying very, very clearly on all this is that no admin fee is being taken for the transfer of these funds. Right. So the, all the admin that is being put in is being done as a gift from South Asian Concern to the work that needs to be done. Well, I think we could talk all day, but I know people <laughs> listening probably have to go and do things as well. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I, I know I'm going to have you as a guest again because um, you don't really retire, do you? And everything <laughs> no. forward. And I've loved our conversation. I, I'm honoured to have had you here today. Thank you so much, Ram. Um, Thank you, Rosalind. You're welcome. Thank you, Rosa. And it's been a joy reconnecting with you and having this conversation. Thank you for that. Um, you're more than welcome. So this has been uh, another episode of Monkey Business Podcast. I'm Roslyn Palmer. My incredible guest today has been Rand Givdemol. And I will put links so that if anybody is moved and inspired to make that difference today, um, that they will know where to go and help and donate to help people in India and people in need at the moment. So thank you very much, Ram. And I'm Rosalind Palmer <laughs> signing off from Monkey Business for another week. Thanks very much. You've been listening to an episode of Monkey Business podcast with me, your host, Rosalind Palmer, looking at the mindset of those who have been successful in business and the business of life. And our incredible guest today has been Ram Gidimal, CBE. And Ram has shared with us how he started life as a refugee, age 17, coming from East Africa and facing life as a refugee in London, in England, moved to retiring at the age of 37 to give back, to pay it forward after a visit to the then Bombay and seeing the slums and children who couldn't even afford to sleep in cardboard boxes. 
And since that time, he's philanthropic, paying it forwards, making a difference, actions, fundraising, have helped charities, housing associations, raised over a billion pounds. And Ram, along the way, has stood as candidate candidate for Mayor of London. And he now is a non-executive board member in the Parliamentary and Health Servicemen, Ombudsman and other boards, and still is making a difference, creating bridges for multiculturalism and for changing the lives of those most in need. So thank you for listening and do tune in again for the next episode of Monkey Business.